It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? We have a great show for you tonight. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Come to the dispatch.com to see all our stuff. You know the spiel. Um, and uh, hey, uh, I know I haven't asked for this in a while, but if you have a chance to give us some positive reviews at iTunes or, or wherever else you listen to the podcast, um, that would be great. I should also say it would be better. It's great that you guys comment about the podcast at the dispatch, but it would probably be better for us if. Um, you listened on a normal podcast player and, and gave us a wonderful review. Um, uh, we had some trouble. I think it's been fixed, but I've been meaning to say this for so long. Uh, we got some complaints, perfectly legitimate complaints, because there was some problem with the Substack interface connected to the Cadestra and the Queen Astray that got messed up with the pneumatic tubes um, and the machine that goes to Pocketa to Pocketa that caused. Um, some episodes of uh, this podcast and maybe some others as well to just sort of abruptly stop at the end. Again, I apologize for that. They didn't abruptly stop in real life. They just, um, for some reason, the players just won out. Um, if it's been fixed, great. Um, and again, I apologize for all that. But if uh, you could listen to other places, that'd be great too. But please keep, um, you know, but if if the... Only way you can listen to it is at the dispatch. That's great too. I'm uh, just, you know, I'm looking out for you. Um, so it has been another crazy week for me. Um, I'm still decompressing a little bit from all of the Texas stuff. But if you've listened to this podcast or to the dispatch podcast or to the glop podcast, you've probably heard me talk about being stuck in Austin enough. And, um, I will say, I, I think I got some of the criticism I got from people about um, complaining about it, where I thought was a little unfair, just insofar as I always went out of my way to say other people had it much worse than I did, and that, you know, mine boiled down to a family drama and an inconvenience compared to people, you know, people died, and I'm aware of that, And but some people just seem to have glossed over the fact that I had made those caveats. And even said in one G file that I don't want to write about it because um, it felt inappropriate to do so when people were still suffering. But anyway, this is all to say that I do read a lot of your comments and um, um, doesn't necessarily mean I have to agree with all your criticisms. You know, we don't uh, we like all your feedback a great deal, but, you know, we are not populists here. It is OK to disagree with the customer and the people. Um so I just finished a very long G file, which I'll get to in a second. 
But, um, you know, I started, I, I wrote it in my car, smoking a cigar. And um, when I turned on the normal radio um, to for the drive back, uh, I turned on Fox News and there was just this insane story. And I'm not trying to make light of it because it's a truly terrible story, but it, it was like the way they reported it, this is not a criticism of Fox either. They just reported it straight. But the point is, it was so weird to hear how they reported this story straight. It, it felt like, you know, some sort of comedic, dystopian, idiocracy kind of movie where they very sternly say, uh, warning for this next story, there's some very disturbing footage. And then they proceeded to tell the story about Lady Gaga's dog walker being attacked and two of her French uh, bulldogs were kidnapped or dog napped. Um, and the guy was shot and went to the hospital and it was just such a weird thing, um, to report on. And it's terrible. And the people who did it, you know, as you probably know, I'm, I'm very much anti-dog napping, um, and very pro dog and nothing will get me to, um, form ranks with Lady Gaga more than, um, this sort of thing. I'm not sure the best course of action is for her to offer the half million dollar reward. It might encourage, might be some moral hazard there, but I don't blame her. If I had that kind of scratch, I would want my dogs back too, but it's just such a terrible, weird, weird story. And, um, it's another one of these examples of how, um, we're in a really strange timeline. Um, so where to begin? Um, all right. So one point I made, this was in the uh, midweek G file, which only uh, paid members of the dispatch community um, had uh, ready access to. Though, so if you want to forward these things around, that's always fine by me because word of mouth. If you think there's someone who would like to read one of the um, uh, subscriber only G files or any of our other products, we encourage you to forward it around to people who you think might like it because. You know, uh, word of mouth is a really important way to sort of uh, build our um, subscriber base. But anyway, um, I wrote this thing about how um, it was basically prompted by David French's um, newsletter where he liked uh, the phrase doubling down on the yeehaw, which he erroneously attributed to Kevin Williamson from our podcast about Texas. And, um, you know, my, my basic point in the podcast was that I was particularly dis disappointed in Rick Perry, who, um, despite some of his cornpone stuff, um, was actually a really pretty good governor and, um, actually knows a thing or two about, you know, public policy and, um, and good governance. He did a good job, you know, building up Texas. He was also the secretary of energy under Trump, which, you know, admittedly, a lot of people don't really understand that that job is basically like 80% of that job is basically being a, um, um, a superintendent for nuclear waste and other nuclear power issues. But um, still, you know, you spend four years as a secretary of energy, you probably know a good deal about the electrical grid and all of these kinds of things. 
And rather than the respond to a very serious disaster in his home state with a serious examination of public policy stuff, he instead, as I put it, doubled down on the yeehaw and basically went on a sort of Fox News diatribe analysis about the Green New Deal and all of this stuff. And look, I'm as against the Green New Deal as anybody. Um, uh, but I'm just sort of sick of this kind of, um, you know, boob bait approach to politics where rather than actually invest your energies and integrity in, in governing and incompetence, you feel you got to play to the crowd and all things. And sort of like what Kevin said in the podcast that, you know, basically if you live in a red state these days, you're largely governed by Fox news because all of the politicians care more about being on the right side of that audience um, than, uh, to put it bluntly, their jobs. And I'm sure that it's obviously a broad brush and it's not fair to everybody. And there are good people, you know, there's Mitt Romney and Ben Sass and, um, um, you know, and Mike Gallagher was technically not from a red state, but you know, there are people out there who are responsible, but I think the general point is, is right. Nonetheless, is that there is this distorting effect, um, that the kind of entertainment and grievance wing of, of conservatism, um, dominates uh political discussions even when what is most sorely needed are serious conversations about public policy stuff you know and um i'm not uh, i you know uh, my friend dan rothschild had a good headline for a piece he wrote which i haven't read yet um past like the first couple sentences because i was working on the g file but it was something along the lines of even the narratives are bigger in texas um, it was really kind of annoying the way everybody just brought their priors to the debate about energy policy in Texas. And, um, I think you can make a powerful case that, you know, prior to this black swan event, Texas actually had a very good, um, way or certainly very defensible way of, um, handing energy and po- handling energy policy, but it, they lacked some foresight about, you know, these, these black swan kind of events. And so there's criticism to be made and all that. And certainly some of the stuff with this variable rate, um, thing where people are getting $10,000 energy bills, uh, someone needs to have a hard look at that. But, uh, the idea that the, um, Blackouts in Texas prove the efficacy of, of the Green New Deal or prove the efficacy of free market capitalism. They're both it's it's just it's 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 like these guys on like CNBC who just go on and talk their book. Um it is it's just it's bending reality to your political talking points. Um I think Kevin makes a good point that, you know, in a in a system where you're not allowed to set your own prices. You can't really talk about it being free market capitalism. And, um, and I'm not sure that you need to have arguments about free market capitalism when it comes to things like utilities. I mean, there are, there are some things like the provision of water and electricity and these kinds of things. It seems to me that there's a role for government to be involved in. That doesn't mean that you can't have improvements that come from applying some market principles to these things. And I think you most certainly can, um, you know, there are places where utilities are, are private sector affairs. Um, 
but I just think it's, it's, it's one of these things where you just got to get into the nitty gritty about it and not just sort of, um, do fan service one way or the other. And, um, so anyway, I can't remember how I got on that. I'm, as you can tell, I'm really kind of spent. Oh, yeehaw. So the point I made in the G file is that, you know, sort of along the lines of fish don't know they're wet. Everybody lives in a, to use a fancy phrase, a cultural milieu. Everyone lives um, in a culture or a subculture. And um, one of the weird things about America in particular, and I think I've talked about this before, is that we have a tendency, I mean, Texans don't have this tendency. Texans have a really robust sense of their own culture. And I learned that when I spoke at a big conservative event in Austin once, I don't know, five, 10 years ago. And I had no idea that Texans do the Pledge of Allegiance to the United States flag, and then they do a quarter turn and do a Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of Texas. And I was like, uh, you know, a Jew in a Baptist church pretending I knew the words <laughs> to, you know, the hymnal or whatever, because uh, I had no idea that this happened. And it was, it was really kind of fascinating. But, you know, but even so people in Texas, you know, often kind of assume that their cultural assumptions are just the normal things. And they only really kind of notice their own cultural assumptions when they're challenged by, um, the introduction of other cultural norms. And, you know, and, and I thought Kevin made a really interesting point, which I compared to the rise of nationalism in 1800s Europe, where you often get these sort of manufactured forms of national identity only when you have um, the imposition or sometimes the oppression by um, uh, a foreign culture. And it causes people to sort of double down on their own identity. And, um, and so I wrote this GIFO about how, you know, everybody doubled out, doubles down to one extent or another on their yeehaw. Um, yeehaw is just using as a term for, for Texas culture. Um, but you know, uh, there's, uh, you know, there, I, I don't know what the right word would be to, instead of yeehaw, but there's definitely a doubling down kind of, uh, on the yeehaw for uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts or the upper West side of Manhattan or, um, anywhere else where, you know, you, you find these people who, um, sort of embrace as sort of a what uh, Ernest Gellner called an enchantment creed where they 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 sort of when they feel that their own culture is threatened they build up this sort of artificial understanding of their own culture this sort of um you know almost a caricature of their own uh their own culture and Kevin's point was that in Texas there's a lot of that kind of um you know, fake cowboy kind of stuff these days because Texas is prospering and Texas, you know, places like Dallas and Houston are pretty cosmopolitan, sophisticated cities. And there are people who feel kind of threatened by that. And so they retreat into these cultural identities that are kind of, you know, uh, fashion statements more than authentically felt. And I think you could attribute some of that to, so like, if you go back and you look at, you know, what this guy Gottfried Herder was doing, I mean, sorry, Johann Herder was doing when he 
was one of the architects of German nationalism. He's the guy who revived those uh, or popularized those Brothers Grimm fairy tales. They were part of the Brothers Grimm were part of this project. And, you know, the, most of these fairy tales were kind of forgotten um, and some were just sort of invented, but they became sort of these peripheral things to German culture all of a sudden became became central. And, you know, Herder used to say things like, you know, spit out that vile scum of the Seine, uh, meaning the French language and embrace the German language. And um, you, I think you can see similar stuff like that going on in Texas where, you know, you have, uh, what's his name? Alan West. I almost said Cornell, Cornell West, who doubles down on a very different form of yeehaw. Um, you know, embracing all of this secession talk, um, which is just profoundly silly and dangerous by my lights. But it's the kind of thing you do when you start taking this manufactured cultural stuff more seriously than actual politics or facts on the ground. And at, at some point, uh, it becomes real politics because you've convinced enough people that this is what they should be caring about. You know, um, it's sort of like the the transgender story hour thing. I'm against transgender story hours, but if you convince enough people that this is symbolically what's wrong with the country and where their political energies should be, you can make the case that it's silly and trivial and a waste of time and, and effort. But on the other hand, if you're successful in convincing people of that, that's what politics becomes about. That's what cultural politics becomes about. And there's, you know, history is just drenched in things that are against the interests of the people or even the state um, in a sort of a technical real politics sense, um, but are deeply bound up in culture and people become invested in them. And, you know, sometimes you even get wars because of this kind of stuff, you know, affronts to national honor are a problem. And I think I've talked about this before, you know, in Julian Benda's Treason of the Clerks, you know, he makes this wonderful point about how prior to the age of sort of mass populism and democracy, kings were much, or monarchs, whatever, but kings, um, they got to unilaterally decide what was in or not in the nation's honor. And, um, and so sometimes they could cynically exploit notions of national honor for their own benefit to launch crusades or wars or whatever, but sometimes they could just simply choose not to. They didn't feel compelled. There was no sort of mass democratic or populist pressure on a king to say, okay, we're going to spend money we don't have um, defending some slip of land that we don't care about in northern France if the king didn't want to do that. But in the modern era, um, sort of the democratic age or the populist age, mass age, whatever you want to call it, um, kings became monarchs, even though you still had monarchs who were, were, you know, nominally fully in charge of their countries, they became servants to the masses. And if the masses got whipped up, they, um, they put pressure on national leaders to do things that the national leaders didn't want to do. And, you know, some of this actually just simply comes from the rise of mass literacy and mass communication in you know, in medieval or feudal times, word from, you know, the capital was very rarely on time. And uh, people were just too tired from tilling the soil and churning butter and couldn't read anyway. And there were no newspapers. And so basically the modes of communication came from uh, nobles and from the Catholic church. And what the masses were told to care about 
was pretty tightly controlled. But once you live in an era with newspapers and magazines and later radio and all the rest, the balance of power between the rulers and the ruled changes. And um, you can get, you know, you can get the, the, the masses to lead the leaders in ways that was sort of unheard of in, in prior ages. And um, anyway, I didn't plan on talking about that, but I just started going that way. Um, and, um, and so anyway, on this sort of everybody has their own culture and they don't really see it. It seems to me that this is one of these things that um, one of the valuable things that immigrants, um, that immigrant, let me put it this way, immigrant writers um, and intellectuals often bring to uh, discussions about American culture is that because they are, you know, you know, they're not tourists if they move here for good, but you know what I mean? It's because they're newcomers, they can see things from outside the fishbowl in ways that we just sort of simply take for granted. And, you know, I think it's Louis Zingales I once heard talking about this, about how amazed he was about um, motels and hotels in America, where despite all of that, you know, these different companies building hotels in different places at different times with different business strategies, you can pretty much go into almost any hotel built since, I don't know, 1950, and immediately on your right is a light switch and, or immediately on your left is a light switch. And immediately on your right is a bathroom or vice versa. And they basically, the rooms basically have the same layout. And if you walk around Europe, because these built, a lot of these buildings were built before modern electricity and modern building methods, and they couldn't do it from the sort of cookie cutter blueprint kind of thing. They're all kind of, you know, cattywampus and have different models of for doing all these kinds of things. It's kind of thing I never would notice on my own, really, as a sort of expression of American culture. But, you know, and when I go to Europe and I see, you know, I go to hotels and, you know, like, where the hell is the light switch? And, you know, um, why is this room in this weird, you know, semicircle shape and all these kinds of things? That feels to me like European, an, an example of sort of how Europe is different. Well, it works both ways. And I, I find that kind of stuff really kind of fascinating is sort of getting outside of your own cultural bubble to see how there really is a lot of that there, there is a thick culture to American life that is not necessarily partisan, um, uh, that we all share, but because it's sort of invisible to us in the way, you know, that the goldfish in the goldfish bowl doesn't know he's in water because they don't know they're wet. Um, we tend not to focus on or think about or talk about. And, you know, I remember once I was in Switzerland and this dour, turgid intellectual came to lecture us about cinema. And, um, and it was bizarre how he was just talking about the tragic sense in American cinema. And, um, and it became really clear really quickly that what he was doing was basically imposing the way a certain kind of European intellectual looks at their own cinema and reading it into American movies, which it's not there. I mean, yeah, there's some depressing American movies, but most of them, you know, have some kind of happy ending, some kind of, a you know, a, a hint that maybe there'll be a sequel where the characters you like will come back and that kind of thing. And I remember him talking about, you know, sort of the Melvillian spirit of Jaws and all this kind of stuff and how bleak it was about the battle with nature or something like that. And I was like, what are you talking about? First of all, they kill the shark. And second of all, 
it ends with them uh, with Roy Scheider and 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 Richard Dreyfus surviving and swimming back to shore to live another day and to live for several more, more sequels as well. Although Dreyfus doesn't come back, which was sort of a shame. Even though I think Jaws Two was still a good movie. Um, and um, anyway, so it's not a great segue, but I don't really care. Um, it got me thinking. You know, yet I think it was yesterday, maybe it was the day before. This amazing piece in the New York Times about Smith College, where um, I think I'll put it in the show notes. I think it was Michael Powell, um, who's a really good reporter. And um, as I got to give credit to Jonathan Shady, points out, you know, there's an entire sub industry of uh, Amer- of conservative media that only does this you know, sort of expose of cancel culture, uh, campus radicalism is out of hand stuff. And a lot of this stuff is good. I mean, I, I'm not saying it's bad. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of garbage out there too on that stuff, but there's a lot of good stuff that comes from the right on that. And, um, that's not my point, but it's kind of amazing that the New York times kind of cornered that beat in a way, given that, you know, New York Times itself suffers from a lot of the problems that <laughs> that he was characterizing at, at Smith. Anyway, Smith had at Smith College, there was an African-American girl, daughter of immigrants, who was eating in a cafeteria where students weren't supposed to be. And a uh, janitor who was instructed to notify security if there was anybody in this part of this building that wasn't supposed that didn't looked like they were supposed to be there. And the janitor who was white, um, reported to security. They have transcripts of it. You should, again, you should read the piece. Um, didn't mention race, actually got the gender wrong of this woman, which later caused her to be furious that she was quote unquote misgendered. Um, and, uh, the security guard comes old guy, white also, and very politely says, you know, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here or something along those lines. And she turned it into a Facebook post that basically says that the school was racist and she was accused of eating while black. And it became um, this existential crisis for Smith College, where um, they did learn-ins and teach-ins and sensitivity trainings and they reassigned workers. And this girl um, went on to uh, accuse two other people who had nothing to do with this. She was just simply wrong. Um, of aiding and embedding in this allegedly racist act. And um, it came damn close to ruining people's lives. Certainly, you know, the janitor was suspended for like three months. I mean, the whole thing was outrageous. And um, that's another example of a microculture where um, the people in it don't really understand how their own culture really works. I mean, my, my favorite example of this I've written about a couple times, but I, I think it was at Oberlin. If not, it was Kenyon. It's one of those schools where um, a kid saw someone at, in a, at, at a distance and thought they were wearing a Klan, Ku Klux Klan outfit and alerted security that there was a Klansman on campus, which is, let's just be clear, very unlikely. Um, and the campus canceled classes. They did meetings. This was a crisis. Um, you know, they had guest speakers come in, sensitivity 
things and, and, you know, uh, counselors who help people with this, you know, this, um, horror. And it turned out that the, the supposed Klansman was someone on a cold day wrapped in a white blanket. Um, and the reason I'm bringing it up is I, I think that, you know, I, you know, I wrote this piece for the public interest like 25 years ago where I made this point and it's only been proven, you know, again and again, is that you get more of what you subsidize. And in this case, what I mean is you get more, uh, what I mean in this case is that in our culture, the subsidy is fame and attention and concern and status and all these kinds of things. And, um, you send every, every one of these events sends a signal that you will be some kind of martyr, some kind of center of attention. You will be anointed with the coin of the realm, which is victim status. Um, people will bend to your needs and concerns because to be a victim, particularly of racism or sexism or transphobia, um, is, uh, you know, the, a new form of virtue. Um, and the more events that you have like this, the more you have contagion where you get more, more events like this. It's sort of like, you know, the concern about mass shooters is that you have a mass shooter, some deranged person who does something, you know, kills a bunch of people and the media coverage of it sends a signal to other deranged people that they too can have their name banding around on TV, that they can be um, at least the beneficiaries of massive negative attention, which for some people is better than no attention as all, at all. Um, there's a great piece in Politico about how that explains a big chunk of Marjorie Taylor Greene's personality. Um, and, uh, and so you get more of these events. And you know, John Miller did a great piece like 20 years ago for National Review on the rise of racial hoaxes on college campuses. And um, my suspicion is that it, you know, no, very few schools have any interest in publicizing these hoaxes or keeping track of the data on these hoaxes. Um, but it's pretty clear that these hoaxes happen quite a lot. You know, we ha you had that crazy thing at the University of Virginia. Um, there have been a bunch of these kinds of things. And you should ask yourself, why are you getting these kinds of things? If, if, the, if, if obviously rape is evil and terrible, um, but what does it say about the culture you're creating when you have this sort of uh, sociological Munchausen response where people think it is in their self-interest to pretend to have been the victims of, um, you know, hate crimes or, or even rape? Uh, you know, what is it that your culture, your microculture is sending out into the world that tells people that this is something that they should be doing? Um, that they will they will reap benefits from it, and a a sane college administration would respond to a spate of racial hoaxes as a stinging indictment of how they teach kids on their campus and what they teach the kids about how the world works. But instead, whenever these things happen, they immediately go into overdrive to immediately b believe the alleged victim and marshal resources and energy in um, 
elevating and highlighting this stuff and giving the people what they want out of it. Now, obviously, there are real bad app, bad incidents that happen on college campuses, but even the responses to the real events, which I, you know, concede happen, though I think far less than people think, um, if the response to the real events prompts people to say, well, I want, I want to get in on that action too and do the same and get the same kind of treatment, then how you're responding to the real incidents is bad too. And, um, and I think that this, this gets to a big chunk of the problem that's vexing places like the New York Times and Slate and others. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I wrote a, the midweek G file about this N-word thing. I will not say the N-word on here, even though I cannot get fired from the dispatch because I think it's a gross word. And I don't think that buying the controversy that it would attract um, is worth it uh, because I have to have a, I have a fiduciary obligation about the brand of, of the dispatch. At the same time, if I were to say out loud the N-word in its full hideous, um, you know, pronunciation, uh, it wouldn't be in the context of using it as a racial epithet aimed at anybody. I think it's a horrible, horrible word and shouldn't be used. But um, the idea that somehow Mike Pesca from Slade um, should be canceled uh, because he was talking about the N-word in an analytical sense is insane. Same thing with this Don McNeil guy from the New York Times. It's insane. And one of the things that really drives me crazy about this is that for 30 years, you know, cultural conservative fuddy-duddies like me used to sort of tut-tut at the way African-Americans um, use the N-word, um, that, you know, I, I don't like hearing it in rap music and hip-hop. Um, uh, you know, I'm not going to say that you know, first of all, I have no power and, and I don't think the state should have any power to prevent black people from using it with each other. But um, uh, at the same time, I, it seems to me that it was it it's it's a it's a vulgarity that I don't like. And I don't think giving it more amplitude um, in the culture was necessarily a good thing. But obviously, people like me lost that argument and the argument that the people who said it was a good thing made almost universally, was that this is the way that black people are taking away this word's power. And, you know, Randall Kennedy at Harvard Law um, actually wrote a book with the full spelled out N-word um, as the title of the book. And it was written about at length in the New York Times. The New York Times has used the N-word in print since 1980. I looked it up, you know, almost 2,000 times. Now, are we really to believe that, you know, Today, let's say Randall Kennedy's book came out today and someone was reviewing it for the New York Times and an editor asked the reviewer, hey, how's that review of that book going or what book do you want to review? And he used the title of the book. Um, are we to then say, oh, my gosh, that is outrageous. This person needs to be fired because of it. Um, you know, you can, you know, it's like the, the, the Chinese language instructor in, um, in California who pronounced a Chinese filler word, you know, which is like sort of, um, uh, which I use a lot in, this is at least how I understand it. 
Um, in Chinese, there's one, there's a kind of filler word that can sound like the N word. And he used it and a bunch of students freaked out about it and he was suspended. Now, this is not, I mean, it's, it's the, the strategy of, of African-Americans using the N-word to take away its power. It may have worked in a sense among African-Americans, maybe, but it certainly hasn't taken away the word's power. It's kind of concentrated it in ways that are like utterly paranoid and almost purely magical. You know, in magic, there's all sorts, you know, in, in feudal or ancient superstitions, there are killing words like in Dune, you know, there are certain words that can kill. Um, and we've turned this word, which again, I'm not a defender of in any way, into something that is, regardless of context, um, a, a career killer word. And I just think that's, that's lunacy and sure it tells you where people are are coming from um, on this stuff. And I think that part of the problem is that the way, particularly at a lot of these elite schools, teach kids, and it starts, you know, this is a Jonathan Haidt point. I, you know, I've, I made it at some length in my book and, and talked about before, um, the sort of the, the safety first way that we teach kids from, from preschool on up where the worst thing that you can do is hurt somebody's feelings and, uh, you know, and a zero tolerance on bullying. And I'm not in favor of bullying. I don't like bullies, but, um, where kids, particularly elite kids, kids like my daughter, um, they go to schools where, um, any interpersonal conflict, you're supposed to call in an adult third party, you know, uh, adjudicator to settle things and you're not allowed, you know, and if you hurt someone's feelings, that is, you know, there are people who've write, written apparently serious non-satirical essays for the New York Times about how words are violence and that they should be treated as violence because that's the way they affect our brains and all these kinds of things. And so you get these kids who go to college with all the trigger warning stuff, um, who are told that anything that makes you feel unsafe, even if your feelings of insecurity or unsafety are not justified and you need to grow up uh that those trump everything else you know it's this this romanticism stuff that I, I harp on that says that feelings are the ultimate arbiter of authenticity and um and meaning so you teach these kids that um anything that unsettles them anything that makes them uncomfortable is somehow not just wrong but but pernicious and and uh, and ill and, and but definitionally sort of ill-intentioned, even when it's not ill-intentioned, uh, you then get these kids who come out of this experience where they're you know, and it's not only that they're taught this stuff about you know their feelings and trigger warnings and all that kind of stuff, but the actual modes of academic analysis increasingly are entirely about finding notions of white supremacy or, or homophobia or sexism in texts, in art, in history, as if those are the only interesting things about the past and they're all evil. And um, you get a lot of kids that that's the only stuff that they know how to talk about intelligently because these are intelligent kids 
And what they've been taught um, from a very early age is that this is the mode of analysis that people are looking for. Uh, you know, I got into, we got into a little bit of an argument with my daughter's teacher recently about my daughter's answer about um, a thing about the women's, the, about feminism, where, you know, she was mildly critical about feminism. And, uh, you know, and my daughter is not like some big anti-feminist person, but she was just like, you know, there were some trade-offs that came with the women's movement. And it was, you know, it's the only class my daughter didn't get an A in for her final year of, uh, for the, her final report card before applying to college. And we kind of felt, I mean, I don't want to start a thing with my daughter's school or anything, but it, it felt like there was, it was into ideological grading rather than academic grading. So you get these kids who understand that they're going to be rewarded when they, when they make claims about racial bias, when they um, find novel ways to interpret, um, uh, you know, all of this intersectionality stuff into literature. And they go out into the world, you know, in, with, with that mode of analysis is the only thing that they think is like serious and intellectual. You know, my daughter spent a year debating To Kill a Mockingbird, and we talked about it a lot. She had to read it both when she was off in Spain and then I, like again here or something like that. Anyways, she had to write like two papers on it. And the argument that you get about To Kill a Mockingbird from a lot of people is that it's a racist book because Atticus Finch is a white savior and the, the African-Americans don't have sufficient agency. Um, and it's an, look, I think that's it's a somewhat interesting reading about, uh, all of this, but as my daughter pointed out, you know, she says, look, we're taught all of the time that white people should be racial allies of African-Americans and why you would, you know, denounce Atticus Finch for being an ally of an African-American wrongly accused just strikes me as very weird. And I thought it was a very good point. Anyway, so you get these kids, they come out into the job place, into the workplace, and they typically come out of these feeder elite institutions like, you know, Smith and Harvard and, and wherever else. And they go into the, into professional settings where they're, always on the lookout for being offended, always on the lookout for proving that somebody is, is racist or sexist. And, and we talked about this a bit on Glop. Uh, you know, Rob made the point, and I think he's right, you know, that a good way of looking at this is just sort of crude Marxist analysis. Some of this is just like, this is the way I get to take out people who are in my way as I climb the professional ladder. And, um, you know, it's very, you know, it's funny. I just recently watched the entire run of Handmaid's Tale. Uh, I know I'm late to this, but I wasn't a huge fan of the book. And, um, but, uh, you know, I, people kept talking about it and you see these women dressed up as, um, characters from the Handmaid's Tale at all these protests. And I like dystopian fiction. So I gave it a try. And I gotta say the show was actually pretty good. I, I liked it. Um, I think it's, you know, obviously got a very strong whiff of feminist paranoia to it. Um, one might even say a strong stench of feminist paranoia to it. But um, it was interesting. And one of the things it kind of reminds me of, like with this girl from Smith, is one of the things that keeps everybody on edge in Gilead is the fear of being accused of 
being a gender traitor or being insufficiently pious um, or, you know, not doing your prayers the right way, all these kinds of things that are, in fairness, hallmarks of almost all totalitarian societies. You know, I've talked about it here before about how, you know, around in Stalin's entourage, people were terrified to be the first person to stop clapping or the first person to stop laughing at one of Stalin's jokes. Uh, you know, people respond to negative and positive feedback about what can destroy your career or end your life or whatever in these kinds of societies. And uh, you get this kind of uh, Maoist approach where young people get to particularly, you know, get to make these kinds of accusations about people being racist or sexist and the evidence that they get to use are their feelings as if feelings are evidence of something in and of themselves. I mean, evidence, I mean, feelings can be indications of evidence, but they're not, it's not evidence of and of itself. And, um, this stuff is, it's, it's got to come to an end at some point, because I do think, you know, one of my one standing arguments is I, I, I think America has, um, an autoimmune problem. You know, when you, uh, uh, it's by analogy, let's say like, you know, one of the arguments for why people get asthma a lot these days is that everything is too clean. And, um, and so therefore your respiratory system or whatever it is, I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering this in terms of the medical jargon, but your respiratory system and your, your, your body in general doesn't have the opportunity to develop the kind of robust immune response that it would under normal circumstances or in, in previous eras. You know, uh, I remember reading, or maybe it was on an econ talk podcast, uh, the Amish have like the lowest rates of, of asthma of any population or one of the lowest rates of, of, of asthma of any population. And it's in part because from a very early age, they're working in barns, they're inhaling dust, they're inhaling, you know, microparticles that we don't need to describe their substance. Um, and it gives them their immune system, the a robust ability to respond to that kind of thing. There's a lot of data. This is one of my arguments for why you should have dogs is that they find that family, you know, households that have dogs in them are much less likely for kids to have asthma. And part of it is just dogs can be kind of dirty and you can inhale the dander and all these kinds of things at a young age. It's, it's, or like with peanut butter, you know, now I'm pretty sure that the evidence is in that if you want to prevent your kid from having a peanut allergy, you should have them eat peanut butter at a really young age because they're, you know, like when they're babies. And I have, you know, I have a friend who drove to the parking lot at the hospital when her son was like one year old and gave it, gave him peanut butter just in case he had a allergic reaction. She could rush him into the hospital. He didn't. And he's not allergic to peanut butter. Anyway, so I think in some ways our society has this, um, this autoimmune problem where because we have cleansed so much racism and bigotry and sexism from our society, it's not all gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fine. But we've cleansed so much of it from our society from such an early age that, um, even the slightest hint 
of bigotry or racism or sexism and all these kinds of things elicits from the sort of organs of the body politic this hyper overreaction to things because uh, we don't know how to process it in under normal circumstances. Uh, you know, like in the world that I grew up in, the people said some bad things to each other from time to time. I mean, not a lot of racist stuff, but, you know, people said bad things about Jews and whatnot. And, you know, you sort of live with it because it's because most of the time it was a sort of joking nonsense. It wasn't anything really kind of serious. Now, my dad, you know, he grew up in the in the Bronx on Gun Hill Road. And, you know, he always used to talk about how, you know, the the Irish kids beat up the Jewish kids. It was just like the way it worked. And the Jewish kids and the Italian kids would get into big arguments with each other because the Italian kids thought the Jewish kids were idiots for going to more school and going to college. And the Jewish kids thought the Italian kids were idiots for not going to college and going straight to work. Um, and I'm sure some unkind words were thrown around, but no one took it as like, you know, entrenched bigotry. They figured out how to modulate their responses to these kinds of things. And we've, we've lost that ability because we are so hyper attuned to this stuff that we overreact to it in ways that are far more dangerous than the bigotry. And one of the sad and grotesque consequences of this is that you have precisely because this stuff has become so taboo, you have morons who think that it is a sign of sort of cultural courage and, 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 heroism to be bigoted jackasses you know and a lot of these like groiper racist kids who you know harassed me when i was speaking on a couple different college campus events that's clearly where they're coming from they just think that this is like um you know this is this is what makes them brave and bold truth tellers is that they're willing to traffic in racist and anti-semitic garbage because it gets such a response from people and um we got to figure out how to like tone this, this crap down. I, um, I didn't realize I was going to ramble this long. Um, I should talk a little bit about, uh, today's G file. It is very long. And I will tell you right now, those of you who wrote to me to complain about last Friday's G file being too insubstantial and too, uh, goofy stream of consciousness, um, jocular, um, uh, I wrote today's G file the way I did in part to punish you. Um, I was, I was again, a little miffed by, uh, the complaints about last Friday's G file from some people. Some people really liked it. You know, Charles Murray loved it, um, precisely because it was a pure stream of consciousness thing that I just, uh, vomited onto the screen, um, without any grand philosophical argument to make. Um, but a lot of people were really mad at it. And the thing that annoyed me about the complaint wasn't necessarily the complaint. I have no problem with people who don't like the self-indulgent versions of the G file. I get that. Um, uh, you know, and I'm not going to do my whole Johnny fever, WKRP, you know, booger, um, riff again, but I write the things I want to write. And, uh, I felt like I should file a G file. And that was, given the circumstances of a pretty hellish week, um, what I could muster, what annoyed me was I basically said in the, f this, the first full paragraph, you know, that fair warning, this is going to be 
a stream of consciousness G file with no grand point to it. And if that's not your cup of tea, uh, just bail out now. And I, I sort of fascinated by the people who seem to think that that must have been that, that I, this was some sort of, you know, esoteric Straussian misdirect. And really there was going to be some grand, um, payoff at the end to something. And I was just scaring away, uh, the, 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 you know, the lower forms of the cognoscenti. No, I just, I did a stream of consciousness thing. I thought it was a perfectly fine G file. Um, but today's G file is long. It doesn't have a lot of pull my finger jokes. And it's about two things, really. One is uh, this uh, this piece by Scott Alexander, you know, the um, formerly of Slate Star Codex and now of Apex 10 Astral Codex, something or other. I can't remember what he calls it now. Um, and he did this piece giving advice for Republicans. And as I say in the thing, I should say up front, I'm a big admirer of, of Scott Alexander's. I think he writes some truly brilliant stuff. Um, I thought the New York times sort of hit on him was pretty silly. Um, and, uh, for reasons that sort of have to do with the stuff we've already talked about, um, fully confident that I don't agree with him on everything and that's fine. But like, he's a writer that I've learned a lot from. And I think this piece today, um, or I guess yesterday, I read it today, um, makes a lot of good and interesting points. And, um, and a bunch of people emailed it to me asking me to, uh, comment on it or what I thought about it or write a G file about it. And so, um, I did, but as I say in the G file, I was a little annoyed because I had planned on writing about this trial balloon from, uh, my friend, Bill Crystal about, uh, um, how anti-Trump Republicans should maybe kind of sort of think about possibly joining the Republican part uh, the democratic party. And it turned out that when I read the Scott Alexander thing, the two things kind of jived together and I'll give you a brief pricey as to why. Um, Alexander makes this point, And I, again, I largely agree with it that, uh, that the sort of, and I'm just going to, I'm going to use gross generalization shorthand because people know where I'm coming from on all of this, the sort of woke left that controls much of higher education and the media and, um, is very online and, um, dominates in Hollywood, uh, should be understood as a class, the upper class. And, um, he doesn't make reference to it, but Basically, one of my this is sort of one of my criticisms of what he's um, saying is he's 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 sort of stumbling into a mode of argument that goes back to Joseph Schumpeter, Irving Kristol, um, James Burnham, and 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 a bunch of other people that I've talked about quite a bit here about the new class, you know, and the new class theory basically holds that. There, I mean, there are different kinds of new class theory and there, there are subtle distinctions between them. Um, uh, but it basically holds that, that intellectuals broadly defined as people who manipulate images, ideas, words, um, uh, writers, artists, 
but also social workers. I mean, again, it depends on whose theory of the new class you're, you're working with here. Um, Hollywood producers, uh, that, uh, they control the commanding heights of the culture and they have, and there are sufficient number of them, uh, to, uh, essentially form their own class and they operate as a class or as an aristocracy, uh, which is a point I make at some length in suicide of the West. Here's Joseph Schumpeter, um, writing in capitalism, socialism, and democracy. He says, uh, intellectuals are not a social class in the sense in which peasants or industrial laborers constitute social classes. Yet they develop group attitudes and group interests sufficiently strong to make large numbers of them behave in the way that is usually associated with the concept of social classes. Now, he was writing that, what, in 1942? Um, and before the GI Bill, before the um, sort of explosion in credentialism and, and, uh, and, and, um, sort of the helping professions and all these kinds of things that have come since then. And, and I would argue, and I'm not alone in this, but you know, that you don't even need to have those caveats about how they're not a class like, um, um, you know, peasants or industrial laborers. I mean, uh, peasants, at least in the American context, they're no longer a class. They've been enriched out of peasant status a long time ago. If they ever really had peasant status in the United States, peasant and serf and those kinds of things to larger part, large part went away a very long time ago in the United States, if they ever existed. And, and there is some argument that those categories really don't really apply to the uh, American experience at all. But, uh, meanwhile, sort of the intellectual class broadly defined is very much a class now. And it, and, and so in new class theory, these people are basically the gatekeepers of elite institutions. They made what is often attributed to Gramsci, but it's actually a Gramscian idea that was coined, but the phrase was coined by this German radical, I think in the seventies called the March through the institutions. And a lot of people in the new left in the 1960s, they basically took over lots of colleges. Um, it was one of these classic examples of using the rules of a liberal regime or a liberal institution to gain access to power and then pulling the gang plague up behind you and taking control of it. And so you had a lot of, a lot of institutions that were taken over by sort of new class intele intellectuals, um, but also just sort of, you know, Hollywood types and the rest, they have a pretty tight stranglehold over the idea formation industry in the United States, you know, look, Fox News and National Review notwithstanding. Um, and particularly in higher education, they, uh, as I, you know, as I, as I write today, um, they impose, they police entry to the, um, transmission belts of the meritocracy, um, according to ideological lines. And, um, and so you have, I mean, the best example of this, as I mentioned, is, you know, the discrimination against Asian American kids, um, at places like MIT and Harvard and wherever else. Um, I do not think that these institutions are, are literally bigoted against Asians. It's sort of a classic example of the of sort of disparate impact 
theory, you know, as you know, as I often talk about, you know, this idea of structural racism um, used to be an idea coming out of critical race theory that said, even though nobody in institution is actually racist, the result of certain policies can have disparate racial impacts that are objectively racist, even though there was no racist intent. And whatever merit there was to those arguments, and I think at the margins there were some merits to, in some in some specific cases. The broader point is is that that's no longer what people mean by white supremacy and 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 structural racism, institutional racism. Now they now basically argue as if uh, this is all uh, fruit of the poison tree of slavery and Jim Crow, um, which I think is ridiculous and is part of that sort of uh, uh, hyper allergic response stuff I was talking about earlier. But anyway. These institutions, they um, disproportionately discriminate against Asian American applicants. And my explanation for why they do this is that um, a lot of these kids, obviously not all of them, but disproportionately vis-a-vis um, -vis the population at large, a lot of these kids come from, uh, are either immigrants or the children of immigrants. Um, a lot of them are the first people in their families to go to college. And like Jews and Italians before them, um, a lot of these kinds of families think that the reason why you want to get a college education is to get a good job. It's a sort of a classic bourgeois understanding of like, you know, get a, you know, get a degree. It'll get, you know, guarantee you a better life. You know, and this is like one of these points that I think is like really important to make to a lot of people because a lot of politicians uh, lie about or are, are, are or mislead people about what the point of education. People think that the point of getting an education is to get rich. It's not. The point of an education, particularly in this sort of tradition I'm talking about, about these sort of bourgeois and immigrant families kind of things, it's a hedge against being poor. You know, this is this thing I often talk about, about my, you know, my father-in-law had that great phrase, um, whenever his kids would talk about what they wanted to do with their lives and what kind of jobs they wanted to have and all that kind of stuff, or what kind of businesses they wanted to start, he would say, yeah, but can you eat it? And his point was, cause he was a grocer for much of his life. His point was, if you have a job that, or a profession or a business that is tied directly to a basic human need it is far more likely that it'll always be in demand and that you'll always be able to make money from it or make a living from it, or at least not be poor from it. And this is one of the reasons why Jews pressured the hell out of their kids to become uh, doctors and lawyers. You know, it was nice if they got rich, but what, you know, what they really wanted to do was guarantee that they wouldn't be poor. And if you have that kind of degree, your odds are you might not be rich, but you, you won't be poor. And, um, and this is sort of the mindset that a lot of these families, particularly at places, you know, um, like Stuyvesant and New York, these incredibly intense, academically rigorous schools or like Jefferson School for Science in, in, in Virginia, um, that, uh, their parents are, ride these kids really, really, really hard, um, to, do well in school to get into a good college, to get a good job. And that are, you know, they don't necessarily, you know, these working class parents, they don't 
think America is like this profoundly evil, structurally racist place. If they thought that, they probably wouldn't have emigrated here. Um, instead, they see this as a country for what it is, as a place of immense opportunity. And they, um, and they want to take advantage of that. And so the problem is, I, and again, this is just my theory, is that I think a lot of these kids are not equipped to speak in the language of social justice shibboleths and code. And the schools don't want those kinds of kids. They want the kind of kids who are going to start a transgender poetry magazine or something. And they don't want just sort of uh, nose to the grindstone academic grunts. They want people who are going to be part of this wonderful social justice, you know, cultural revolution stuff. And as just as a matter of statistics, uh, these Asian kids are disproportionately um, ill-suited to do that kind of thing, even though academically they're better suited than pretty much all the other applicants. And so they use that kind of uh, filtering mechanism against a lot of them. Anyway, that's part of my theory about all that. Um, anyway, so Scott, Scott Alexander writes about all that and about the new class. And he says, and he makes this argument. He doesn't say new class, but he makes this new class argument. Um, and he says, what Republicans need to do is do class warfare. And he doesn't mean it in the Marxist, Marxist sense of economic class. He means in the cultural sense of, um, you know, essentially a cultural elite that is, um, imposing a worldview on this country that is, um, that is in some ways sort of aristocratic and European and that it, it cares more about people being in their rightful place in society rather than trying to make, um, you know, pursue happiness as they see it. And uh, I think he's right about that. Um, but I think the problem with Alexander's analysis is, is that it's like he just wandered into this chat room called, you know, political punditry five minutes ago, not knowing that, um, and I don't mean to be harsh about this again, again, I think the guy is brilliant and he has caveats about some of these criticisms, but he writes as if he hasn't paid much or any attention to how Republicans have conducted politics for the last 40 years, which brings me to Bill Kristol. You know, Bill Kristol was the architect of this argument, uh, that, that Dan Quayle became famous for about the cultural elite. And I go into it in some detail um, because I think a lot of people have forgotten about all of this. You know, this is part of the whole Murphy Brown thing and all that. Um, the argument was explicitly that the elite isn't about an economic elite. It's about a cultural elite. It's about this snobbish coastal um, uh, form of sort of cultural hege hegemony that defines you know, what notions of right and wrong are and, and good and bad and all that kind of stuff in our culture. And it looked down on, you know, for want of a better term, real America, a term I don't really like very much anymore. But, um, and it was absolutely accurate. Bill was absolutely accurate about this. And Republicans have been talking in those terms my entire adult lifetime. Uh, they also have been talking about the middle class in part because most Americans, the vast majority of Americans, think of themselves as middle class. But the family values debate was all about this kind of stuff that, that Alexander's getting at. Um, and moreover, it, it is particularly sort of, uh, 
off key about the current moment on the right, because, you know, as Scott Lincecum and I have been banging our spoons on our high chairs about for a while now, uh, the GOP is full of people talking about turning the Republican Party into a workers party, a national workers party, um, uh, a working class party. Um, and I've expressed my criticisms about this quite a few times. I think that this is a, um, a, that this is misguided in a bunch of ways. It doesn't mean there isn't some merit to some of the ideas being put out by people like Orrin Cass and whatnot. But one of the ways it's, it's, it's misguided is this assumption that putting forward working class proposals is the kind pro working class proposals, leaving aside whether their proposals are actually good ideas on the merits, but at least talking about working class stuff will in fact attract and hold the Trump voters that Trump brought into the GOP coalition for her, for his two elections. I don't, I just don't see very much evidence for that. You know, Donald Trump did not, you know, win most of the hardcore Trumpers on policy grounds. They won it on this sort of cultural politics stuff, you know, which is a lot of what Alexander's talking about. And there's very little evidence that when Trump isn't on the ballot, that these kind of voters are going to come on board. Meanwhile, the voters who are turned off by these, you know, crude populist appeals are, have been historically among the most reliable voters in the GOP coalition. These, you know, bourgeois suburbanites who I think are the people that you want in the Republican Party, because those are the people, those are the people with the kind of values that I want to triumph in our politics. And, um, and then lastly, as just a matter of punditry, he and Rubio and Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz and all of these people, um, they seem to think that focusing all of your political energy and, and policy effort at winning over, in effect, these Obama-Trump voters, right? These uh, non-college educated working class voters that... Uh, you should devote all of your time and energy and all of your rhetorical positioning and all of that at those people, um, because that is the key to electoral success. And there's just no evidence for that. There were what, I don't know, like 7 million Obama Trump voters. Um, you have to ask if you cater everything to those voters, what voters are you turning off when you do that? And, um, the way in which, I mean, forget Alexander, because I, I kind of give him a pass because this is not his normal stuff. Um, but the idea that, you know, Holly and these guys um, can just take for granted the traditional part of the GOP coalition and just assume that they'll always just, you know, pull a lever for these guys while all they do is focus on um, the sort of the hardcore uh, Trumpy sliver is just sort of silly to me. I mean, it's like the salesman who thinks, you know, sure, we lose money on every sale, but we'll make it up in volume. You have to ask yourself how far out there you can go in this um, naked pandering to what you believe are, you know, this, this hidden lumpen proletariat, you know, voting block before you start turning off not just suburban voters, but, you know, your traditional donor base and all the rest. And I, I just see no great evidence that the, any of these people have really thought through this stuff. 
Anyway, so back to Bill and all this, and I'll just, I'll end on this because I talked about this on the Dispatch podcast and also on the podcast I did with Declan Garvey. Um, uh, I like Bill um, Crystal a lot. I admire Bill Crystal a lot. Um, I think he's made, I think he's made some mistakes. I'm perfectly comfortable saying that. He's also just made some decisions that I don't want to make. Um, and I write about this in kind of personal terms at the end of the G file, if you can wade through all the other stuff. Um, you know, Bill was always much more of a player in, in party politics and, um, um, and in, uh, sort of journalistic, you know, maneuvering kind of stuff. He was, you know, he, he comfortably wore different hats and lots of people wore comfortably, you know, I'm not going to get my big hat thing again, but prior to 2015 or so, it was very easy to wear your partisan Republican hat, wear your conservative intellectual hat, wear your honest broker journalist hat, um, you know, wear your, you know, red meat hat, all these kinds of things. Um, the, the tensions between these different roles, at least for me, were pretty minor and it was pretty easy for me to steer, uh, to navigate around these different roles that were sort of all subsumed within my sort of professional life. And, and with the rise of Trump, it forced a lot of people to take off their different hats. And some people turned out, put their sort of intellectual truth teller hat aside because their member of the team, member of the party hat was more important. And I say this with nothing but sadness, but I think that's true of people like Bill Bennett. Um, I think it's true of a lot of people. Some people were honest about it. You know, uh, Hugh Hewitt said at the end of the day, he was a party guy. Um, and some people have navigated all that better than other people. And we can have that conversation again, if we, if we really want to, but you know, Bill was always wearing very much a political operator hat. He started organizations that were involved, you know, the project for a new Republican majority or whatever that thing was. He did all that kind of stuff. I was never involved in any of that kind of thing and never really wanted to be to the extent I was involved in partisan stuff. It was very minor. Occasionally I'd speak to some Republican group or whatever, but I never said anything I didn't believe. And so Bill's decision to stay fighting in that arena is fine by me. If he wants to do that, that's his life. It's his choice. He can do that. But what I don't like about, you know, some of the people who, uh, when I mildly criticized, you know, Bill's, you know, trial balloon on Twitter, uh, I got emails from some people about it and all this kind of thing. What some people seem to think is that if I'm anti-Trump, um, and I am, I think that everyone knows that at this point, um, that I have no choice but to consistently follow through with that and become a Democrat and, and, and work to improve the Democratic Party and, and criticize the Republican Party and yada, 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 yada. And I just, I cannot tell you how completely and totally I reject all of that. Um, that's not my role. I um, came through those last five years by sort of resolving to be comfortable in the remnant. That's why I have a podcast called The Remnant. Um, I was very clear I wasn't going to lie for Donald Trump. I wasn't going to change my views on, on, on core conservative principles simply because they were now no longer in fashion. Um, 
And, you know, that doesn't mean I haven't changed my mind about some things. I, as I was saying with the Kevin Williamson podcast, I no longer have that, that instinctive thing about trying to figure out what the best defense of the Republican party is on any given thing. Just, I just don't have the desire or the instinctual, you know, recoil to say my team is being unfairly criticized anymore. Um, I'll still do it when it's unfairly criticized or when I think it's unfairly criticized, but it's not the, the knee, my knee no longer jerks in that direction at all. And, um, and a lot of people are very upset about that and so be it. Um, but like, if I wasn't going to do it on behalf of the GOP and on behalf of my career as a pundit being on TV um, and selling books mostly to conservatives and giving speeches large, you know, not entirely, but largely to conservative audiences. If I was going to risk or forego all of that, um, to stick to my guns and, and stay, you know, telling the truth as I see it, I'm, I'm trying not to be sanctimonious about this. That was just, that was the strategy that I pursued. It was the strategy that Steve pursued. It's one of the reasons why we started the dispatch is because we thought it was important to do that. Um, if I was unwilling to do all that on behalf of Trumpism, I don't see why I should be willing to do that on the behalf of anti-Trumpism. I just, you know, uh, you know, I, I don't want to be a um, somebody who whose first recourse is to figure out, okay, what are the political angles here that are good or bad for a party or a politician? Um, I, I just want to like write what I believe. I w I've retreated into Nakianism and Menkinism in this respect. You know, my, my misanthropy serves me well. And, um, and so, you know, for Bill, who's in the game and, you know, and sees things with the eyes of a tactician a lot of the time. And I remember writing this about Bill 20 years ago where, you know, the, and I sh should probably find this G file. It was, it was either the whole thing or just a section of it was called the irony of Bill Crystal. And again, I say this as someone who admires and likes Bill and all that, but, and we've talked about this since, but I was one of the few conservatives back when he was a sort of a megastar to mildly criticize him because not from the paleocon right, but like from just sort of mainstream conservative point of view, because he always had this gift for saying things to sort of see how much he could move the conversation, you know, seeing how you never, you, when you heard Bill Crystal offer some analysis, it always worked on two levels. You know, first of all, it worked as just good punditry and analysis, but also you were like, okay, why is he floating this idea? It's like, what, what, what is the, what is the strategy behind this in terms of how he is trying to shape the argument or shape our politics in some way? And I just never had that inclination to do things in that way. And he's free to do that. But, um, and so is, you know, and Tim Miller, who is a guy I like a lot, um, who's over at the bulwark and he's proposing this red dog thing about creating, you know, a faction with the democratic party of former Republicans and all, and all this stuff. And I, I wish him luck, but he, you know, he was always a political operator. He was an opposition researcher and a, and a comms guy. That's not me. That's not my role. That's not my hat. And I don't want to wear it. And, um, um, and I will say, you know, as Michael Brennan Doherty makes a good case at, over at NR, I wish him luck. You know, if they can, in fact, 
go into the Democratic Party and serve as a counterweight to the hardcore woke left base, that's good for America. That moves the center of gravity of American politics rightward. That's a good thing. That creates more space for um, reasonable policymaking and, all, and, and, and more space for different kinds of conservatism as well. You know, so good luck with all of that. But there are real risks for conservative intellectuals who want to get into that game. And I'm using intellectual not to be hoity-toity. I just don't know a better term for it. Um, because once you sort of get into that mode, you have to start policing what you prioritize. Because at the end of the day, we judge politics and politicians and political activism not by the people's espoused you know, principles or positions, but by what they prioritize. You know, this is like my case about how libertarianism for much of the last 40 years was, was really about drug legalization. Uh, you know, not necessarily in the sort of rarefied halls of, you know, Mercatus or, you know, Cato or Reason Magazine, although Reason Magazine was pretty gung-ho about drug legalization. But the thing that put asses in the seats at Libertarian Party conventions was all about hemp and pot legalization and all this kind of stuff. And, um, uh, and you know, the, the need for mass privatization was always sort of not the thing that, that really uh, put fire in the belly for a lot of these people. And, and so you, you see this thing where if you join, I, I, if you join the Democratic Party expressly as sort of, as a rejection of Trump and Trumpism and all of that stuff, um, you got to ask yourself, are you going to continue talking about pro-life stuff? If you're a pro-lifer, are you going to continue talking about how the minimum wage is a bad idea? Um, if you want to be relevant in policy circles and, and on the left of center as a way to bolster your credibility within some sort of popular front coalition, um, you know, what stuff hits the cutting room floor? And we can see with people like, you know, Max Boot and, and Jen Rubin and, of course, Steve Schmidt, um, that the need to be all in on a team is very powerful for some people. And I, you know, I in no way think that Bill Kristol is going to defenestrate all of his positions, um, you know, about constitutionalism and all and federalism or foreign policy and all these things. I think he'll 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 hold on to all that stuff. But we've seen for the last three years, he doesn't talk about a lot about that kind of stuff. You know, he's, he's made a prudential, tactical, strategic, whatever term you want to use, decision that this, the most important thing is fighting Trumpism. And if that means putting that stuff on the rhetorical back burner or even putting it up in a shelf for later use, if ever, um, he's kind of been willing to do that. And that's one of the things I have a tactical disagreement with him about in part because, I mean, now it's sort of too late, but back in the early days of the Trump administration, if you want to maintain as a political matter um, credibility with conservatives, every now and then you should, you know, talk about the things that you actually um, believe in as a conservative. You know, you shouldn't, in order to focus everybody's attention on, on this singular issue, just shut up about all that stuff because, you know, conservatives will notice and they did. And, you know, I've mutual friends who say, you know, when was the last time you heard Bill say anything about abortion or say anything about, you know, um, 
you know, uh, you know, how Kavanaugh's a good justice or all this kind of stuff. I mean, I don't, I can't remember all the examples, but you get my point. And, um, and so I, I worry that what you're, again, I don't think this thing is going to work for the reasons Michael and I both, you know, lay out, which is that, you know, the ability of the democratic party to stand up to the woke left is uh, so far non-existent. And I don't see how um, a relative handful of anti-Trump Republicans is going to change that equation. But again, I hope it does. But even in his, um, his sort of trial balloon thing, uh, you know, he talks about how Pelosi and Schumer are sort of moderates or something. And I just, I, I, I don't think that's true. And maybe Bill, and I, I give Bill benefit of the doubt, he may have a definition of what it means to be a moderate that um, uh, applies to them. I don't see it. And it, it kind of feels like the kind of thing you say when you are trying to galvanize support um, and influence in a party. And that's, you know, I, you're just not going to see me writing any columns talking about how Nancy Pelosi is a moderate. Um, you know, I might use the phrase, she's a moderate compared to, I don't know, AOC. I'm not even sure that's true, but, you know, I'm in some context that might be true. It's solely in the fact that at least Pelosi's actions are moderated by the fact that she runs an institution and has considerations that are, and, and, and interests that are different than AOC's. But ideologically, I don't think in any way, shape, or form, Nancy Pelosi is any kind of moderate. And, um, and so I worry that the impact of, of playing that game for the people who are willing to play it is you're going to end up in order to sort of like, you know, in a hot air balloon, in order to get to uh, the right altitude, you're just going to have to keep throwing out ballast. And the ballast is going to be um, your positions, whether you change your mind, as people like Max Boot did, because the the galvanizing pressure to be part of the team forces people to change their positions on all sorts of things. And for some people, it's sincere. I think for Boot, it's sincere. Um, for other people, I think it's opportunistic. Um, you know, Steve Schmidt comes to mind. But regardless, I just think it's it's a real danger. And it's one of the reasons why I don't want any part of that kind of thing because I think that there is something inherently corrupting to, again, for want of a better word, the intellectual project that I'm committed to um, by caring too much about what the um, political calculation or the coalition that you're trying to form is. I, I, I'm just much more interested in you know, writing my little newsletters and doing my podcast and growing the dispatch into this, you know, uh, world bestriding colossus. Um, and that's good enough for me. And I hope it's good enough for people listening to this. I know this has been kind of rambly and I feel like I've said a lot of weird, incoherent things, but I usually feel that way at the end of this stuff. So anyway, thank you so much for listening. And, um, and please, if you can become a member of the dispatch, uh, you know, great things can come or come our way. If we can keep growing um, our list of members, uh, you know, our, the ranks of our members. And if you're someone who actually cares a lot more about this coalitional kind of stuff and, 
and in the politics of it. I do think, you know, all that stuff I just said, notwithstanding, creating a place where sane and serious right of center uh, journalism that's honest and, you know, without sort of partisan loyalty um, driving things. I think if we, you know, the more we have of that, um, the better it is for the kind of Republican Party that, you know, I would like to see, the better it would be for the kind of conservatism I would like to see rather than the, you know, the circus that is unfolding at CPAC right now, I gather. So anyway, uh, thank you all very much. And, uh, you know, I'll see you next time. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.